0: Hello and welcome to Greening the News, the podcast from IEMA, the membership and professional organisation for everyone involved in environment and sustainability. My name is Sarah Mukherjee and I'm your host and IEMA's Chief Executive. So, another day, another price rise. Everyone, wherever they are in the world, will have noticed energy prices are skyrocketing, pushing the cost of heating and cooking up to previously unheard of levels. And because pretty much everything we consume is made using fossil fuels, all the energy they create everything else is going up as well. So this month, we're speaking to two incredible women who are working to unhook us from fossil fuels and who are walking the walk towards a greener, low-carbon world. Sarah Merrick, CEO of Ripple Energy, and AIMA Fellow, Caroline Donnelly, who's Consent Manager with SSE Renewables. Uh, Sarah and Caroline, thanks ever so much for joining us. Hi, really pleased to be here. Oh, fantastic. Yes, good to be here thanks thanks ever so much so um and now before we start with what you do because it's absolutely fascinating are you in the same position as the rest of us and you know you open that bill or you click on the email and you think how much no sorry that's how much my mortgage is not how much my my energy bill is are we, are we all in that situation at the moment <laughs> <laughs> yes
1: definitely Yeah, indeed. Everyone's getting the letter saying their tariffs are going up. Yeah.
0: Um, So, Sarah, your company, it's a direct access and direct access to investment to green energy. I wonder if you could perhaps tell us a bit more about it.
1: Yes. So what Ripple does is we basically enable individual households and businesses as well to own a tiny part of a large scale wind farm or eventually solar park or offshore wind farm as well. And then they get the low cost green electricity that it generates supplied to their homes via the grid by our supply partner. So we're not a supplier and we don't develop wind farms. We enable individuals to own little bits of wind farms and um, to get their low. And at the moment, it's really, really important, stable priced electricity. So, you know, Doesn't matter what's happening with the electricity market price, the cost of operating the wind farm is low and steady throughout its 25 year lifetime. And so by owning a bit of the wind farm, you get your share of the wind farm's generation at its low and stable electricity price. So um, how does that
0: work in terms of your own energy bills then? I mean, does that mean that you you're investing in one
1: so you get a reduction in the other or is there a link between the two? Yes, there's a direct link between the two. So you own, you know, maybe you own like a thousand watts of the wind farm and then you get the generation that that thousand watts generates, but you get a saving um, applied to your electricity bill each month. And that saving is basically the difference between the wind farms running costs and the market electricity price. So when the market is really high, that difference is really high. So the saving on your bill is a lot higher. Um, in years where the market prices has, has come down, then your savings would go down as well. But the net effect is that it helps stabilize your electricity bills for the long term so when prices are high your bill will be high but your savings should be higher as well when prices are low your bill's low but then your savings would be a bit lower as well so yeah the net effect is to help stabilize your bill for the long term
0: yeah it's kind of a bit of an offset isn't it really and can you as an individual can you just rock up or write you an email and say can I get involved
1: exactly so you can just sign up on our website so we, we our first wind farm. Started generating last week, which is really exciting. And then we've got another one, much bigger one in Scotland, um, that's open at the moment. So you can just go onto the website, literally buy shares in the co-op that owns the wind farm. And then once it's operating, which will be later in 2023, that's when you start getting your savings off your bill, because that's when it starts generating, basically.
0: Brilliant, thank you, Caroline. Now, all the big energy companies, of course, you know they they all have renewables. They're interested in your renewables and developing them. Um, I wonder if you could tell me what a consent manager is, because I have to say, when I heard it, I thought, "Ooh, is it that one of those people who sit there when they're doing scenes on <laughs> doing scenes on telly that you've got to have kind of you know stockings on and three three meters?" Please tell me that's the case. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it, exactly. No, <laughs> I've actually never uh, come across someone had that uh, idea of what my job might be. That's a good one. <laughs> I have to tell my children that. No. So- as a consent manager, I suppose I am responsible for getting all the regulatory consents in place before a, a renewable energy project gets, off, gets operating. Um, so you start at the very start with maybe a greenfield site or you're looking at areas where you think this might work and it, working with all the various stakeholders and getting a project to operation. And unfortunately, at the moment in the Republic of Ireland, in some cases that can take 20 years. By the time you get your all your license, yeah, yeah, and that is one of our big problems that we're facing is the time it takes to get something generating electricity. So we start, you know, at the start with all our various um, maybe landowners or um, whoever the stakeholders are, and get to a situation where you can actually deliver uh, electricity. It's a a long and onerous process at the moment, but hopefully it is something that will change. And given the horrific events that are happening at the moment, we're hoping that this will be a driver to reduce our um, dependency on imported fossil fuels.
0: So why is it taking so long? I mean, 20 years, that's a generation isn't it it's like you're handing down (laughs) here you are my son (laughs) or daughter
2: (laughs) or daughter yeah and it's not always the case that it takes so long but you know there has been instances in Ireland and and I would think in the UK as well where it has taken that long I suppose the process the planning process is a long arduous one and It's something that we feel, especially within SSE, that needs more resources. We need more, you know, interaction with government bodies. We need better resourcing of the government bodies then who do the actual planning, who do the consenting. And there's lots happening in that area. And it's just to get that final push, you know, to give us the I suppose the the short time frames that we need because we are facing a climate crisis and we need to act
0: now and if we could do that it would be a huge advantage. Yeah I mean in fact 20 years from now is 2042 which is eight years away from net zero 2050 so yes yeah absolutely there's and I mean I suppose this is a question for, for both of you in terms of um, that urgency. I mean, you know, we had COP twenty-six last year and everybody was saying, you know, fossil fuels are absolutely we, we've got to do something about it. And we had all this stuff about do we phase out coal or do we phase down coal and the the wording around it. But actually, the thing that seems to be driving a lot of government attention now is the fact that there are increasingly large numbers of people who just can't heat and eat and do, do anything else at the same time. And Sarah, do you think that, I mean, have you seen interest increased in as a
1: result of this current crisis? Yeah, we, we absolutely have. So I think, you know, at times like this, as you, as you said, you know, energy costs are just going through the roof and, and that's leading to a real, you know, cost of energy crisis as well. So yeah, we're absolutely seeing more people wanting to you know just seeing the benefits of owning their own source of low but stable priced electricity as well as obviously you know all, all the benefits you get in terms of reductions in carbon emissions as well so and i think the 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 energy crisis is really sort of driving you know government action it's sort of forcing their hand a bit in terms of you know ramping up you know all these things that they should have been doing for the last five or 10 years that they haven't been doing so you know whether or not it you know improving energy efficiency in people's homes allowing more onshore wind farms and solar parks particularly in england to get consented so there's been hardly any onshore wind farms consented in, in england over the last sort of five or eight years it's absolutely crazy when it's you know it's it's the uk's cheapest source of power but, but you just can't get new projects consented but we're hoping that that will change um in, in the next few weeks, and then it will start getting eased because you know there are lots of projects that are kind of you know they're nearly ready to go. It wouldn't take much work for them to to, to be able to start construction. And you know if they could, if all those wind farms and those solar parks could be um, built and, and and generated, they would generate enough electricity to switch. I think it's about 4.8 million homes onto, you know, powering their home, but also powering, being able to switch from a gas boiler to a heat pump and generating enough electricity to power the heat pump. And also switching away from, um uh, you know, petrol or diesel car to an electric car and powering your electric car. So you could have a sort of, you know, complete zero carbon household. You could get, you know, nearly 5 million households all powered just with the green electricity that, that these wind and solar farms that are currently blocked could deliver. And Caroline, I mean, talking about how long it takes to get
0: you know, that sort of consent. I'm just thinking in terms of this, um, you know, this energy crisis. And of course, you know, there are people who are saying, "Well, this is all very well, but you know, this is my land that you're asking to to do it on. I'm not so sure about it. It's going to blight the landscape." You know, all the things that we have heard um, to Sarah's point about why people are not so keen about onshore wind. I mean, do you think this will change? the dial from that point of view? Because if you've got, you know, at the moment, if you're looking at fossil fuel related energy only going in one direction, then presumably wind farms start looking more attractive from all points of view.
2: Yes, I would think it it will. But I mean, at the moment, if you look at recent surveys, the majority of people in Ireland are supportive of onshore wind and offshore wind. And there is quite strict guidelines about where you can put your wind farms. Um, so, you know, in theory, and if you start with the public at the very outset, you should have their support all the way through. And if you um, site your wind farm in you know, a correct location with public support, with community support, then... Um, that should ease the process. Like we have the technology to achieve, as Sarah was saying, a low carbon, even a net zero uh, future. We have the resources, we have the skills, we have the experience. What we lack is a policy system that will enable the successful and cost-effective and rapid deployment of renewable electricity. You know, we have everything is lined up. We're just missing that that last piece, shall I say. Like Ireland is a leader in integrating renewable energy into our electricity systems. We have one of the world's most successful onshore wind industry, um, and we could do so much more. We we are facing a climate crisis, and I think given what the, the horrific events that are happening at the moment, the whole international panel on climate change, that last report, was kind of lost. But that gives you know, a stark warning as to where we're going if we don't change. And I think if we all come together, we use the resources that we have, we can achieve so much.
0: And so um it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because in Ireland and in the UK, it seems to be the same, the blockers seem to be the same. I mean, Sarah, is that fair to say? It's that policy piece that we just haven't got quite right yet.
1: Well, I, I, I think for... For, for, for offshore wind, you know, there's actually huge, huge deployment of offshore wind. And even for onshore wind in in Scotland and to some extent in, in, in Wales, it's that there's not a huge blocker. It's The, the issue is particularly for, for onshore wind in England. And, you know, onshore wind farms can be um, stopped by a very, very small number of people, even though, you know, as Caroline said, there's huge support. The vast majority of people want to see more onshore wind farms, including those, you know, where you would have projects proposed um, in their local area as well. So, you know, public support, you know, mass deployment of of wind, but it's held up primarily, particularly in England, by the consenting regime. There's actually, you know, the government policies for deploying, you know, massive amounts of offshore wind um, is is actually pretty good in the UK. It's more, you know, where we really, really need to see increased action is more on things like energy efficiency um, and the shift towards you know, heat pumps. So people can get rid of their gas boilers and switch to an electric heat pump and making that a lot more affordable than, than it currently is. Because at the moment, it's just, you know, it's way too expensive for, for the vast majority of people to be able to um, to afford.
0: Now, it's interesting you mentioned heat pumps. I'll be interested to see what both of you think, because it, you see in the press that you need to be living in a stately home in order to get a heat pump big enough to make any difference, and otherwise you're consigned to lukewarm baths until the end of time. I mean, is is that fair, or, or you know, should we be looking at a different scale for heat pumps, maybe on a community scale or something like that?
1: No, I, th- I, th- I think heat pumps can work in a just huge variety of homes. I think that there are lots of misconceptions about. Um, You know, heat pumps, you could say exactly the same thing about gas boilers, that, you know, your gas boiler is less efficient if your home is less efficient. Exactly the same thing happens with with, with heat pumps. So, yeah, you can have, you know, Victorian terraces and, and sort of more leaky homes. It might be less, you know, I think in terms of, you know, really rolling out the technology at scale. It makes more sense to start with, you know, newer, more energy efficient homes to then sort of bring the cost right down so that then by the time we sort of start working on the more leaky homes, the cost has come down. So it's even more affordable for those people. But yeah, it, you know, it, it just makes sense to start with the easiest homes and those would be the most efficient. But, but yeah, they can absolutely work in vast majority of homes. Now, moving
0: on to, to to heat pumps and other sources other than you know just direct renewables. And Caroline, the hydrogen debate again. This is another one that um, if you read the papers, you're just more confused than when you started. <laughs> because you know, is it good? Is it bad? Is there enough? You know, are, is it like blood diamonds? Are we bringing in hydrogen from places that we shouldn't be bringing it in from? I mean where do you think hydrogen fix Well, I think it's a crucial part of the
2: energy mix. You know, if you look at how what what hydrogen is, it's. Um, and and how it's it's how it ties into the renewable energy debate currently here in ireland if you have a wind farm that's operating there's certain times of the year where it's creating too much energy and you have this excess energy if you want to put it like that and what do you do with that imagine if you could use that in an electrolyzer in its very simplest form you get water you break it down and you get hydrogen and you can use that hydrogen then for, especially in a transport fleet. If you think of local buses or even, um, ferries or trains or aviation cars, even there's, it is happening. There's places now in the UK, even where you can, um, you know, fuel your, your bus or your, your car on hydrogen and the emissions are like, are, are zero. You've got oxygen coming off and water, you know? Um, so I don't, I can't understand why it isn't um, more in focus and more on government's um, agenda to use this. If we look at everything that we have on offer, if we look at our onshore wind, our offshore wind, our solar, our hydrogen, if we integrate everything together, there's so many opportunities to create our net um, zero future.
0: Oh, OK. So, so you can use hydrogen like a kind of battery. So... Uh, if the wind's blowing and you can't have anywhere to store it, you could use hydrogen to 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 uh, capture that and then use it at a at a later time. Is that
2: exactly you? You can you you can you know store it. Um, you can use it uh, there and then, obviously. But you you can store it. You can put it into storage containers or tube trailers and then deliver it to, for example, what we're used to now with our four courts with our our diesel and our petrol. You know the same way, you could have a tube trailer of hydrogen that comes along. It's um, used then in your um, hydrogen vehicles, whether that be buses or cars or whatever. Even like aviation, you know, there's maybe not quite there on the aviation yet, but definitely there's buses and cars that are using hydrogen at the moment all across Europe.
0: Sarah, we've talked about the big strategy things and you know, what governments can do on a national scale. When it comes to households, I mean, we've, we've touched on this a little bit, there's kind of uh, energy efficiency and that sort of thing. But what is, you know, are there a couple of things, I mean, often there are just two or three things that if you did it, it would make quite a big difference in terms of domestic heating. What are the couple of things that governments could do to make a big difference in changing our energy efficiency and our, and unhooking us from fossil fuels?
1: yes you know it, it's all the sort of boring and unsexy things but that actually that you know that we should have been doing um for really easy things people can do you know if you've got a combi boiler you can just reduce the flow temperature um and and that can reduce your um the amount of gas that your gas boiler uses by sort of six to eight percent you know you can do that in a few minutes it doesn't work if you've got a hot water tank system but if you've got a combi boiler like so many households have you can just reduce reduce the flow temperatures and and, and it can work really well you know really boring energy efficiency stuff like you know getting dub- double glazing insulating your roof better insulating your um your walls fixing that draft that you've got going around your front door you know it's all these things that you've been sort of meaning to get around to And um, but I think you know at the moment there's a real role for government to tell people I think you know previously there's been a big focus on you know energy efficiency is about climate change but actually you know that there's now a really, really urgent and pressing need, with, with electricity and energy prices being what they are, to just help people, you know, see the changes that they can make. You know, they can make quite significant um, reductions in the amount of, um, you know, gas and electricity they use, which then would obviously reduce their gas and electricity bill as well, you know, sort of not forgetting about emissions. But, you know, even from a bill um, and sort of affordability perspective, you know, people can or governments can help households by just, you know, arming them with the information that they need to do these, you know, relatively basic things that can reduce their um, energy bills um, pretty substantially. Obviously, then we do need to be getting into, you know, shifting to heat pumps, you know, houses that are sort of heated by oil, you know, they may see the biggest savings there as well. So there's a whole raft of measures that people can take. and Lots of them are simple. Some of them do have an upfront cost, in which case, again, there's a role for government to make those more affordable. But, you know, all the sort of, you know, I think there's such a huge need at the moment for government to be helping people understand how they can reduce their energy costs, because it's a really, really pressing need at the moment.
0: I'm loving this discussion. Um, And just while we ha- have the floor, we'd love to hear from you, our IEMA members and listeners, uh, about what you're doing to address your energy bills. Uh, do you, are you are you a bit light green? Or are you just putting on a couple of extra jumpers, or just? You know, getting upset about the costs of the, your bills, or are you installing heat pumps? Are you going completely off grid? Do email me at sarah.mukherjee. That's m u k h e r j w e at iman.net. We'd love to hear from you and feature your voices and your thoughts in the next podcast, guys. Before we realise time is kind of against us, but uh, just in the last couple of minutes, can I just ask you uh, a little bit about what we haven't talked about? Is of course Yes, uh, renewable energy is is more attractive, but potentially so is fossil fuels. And we've already heard that some governments are thinking about reintroducing fracking or looking at oil exploration, which, of course, is now economically viable in a way that hasn't been before. Um, and Caroline, is this something that concerns you that as well as we are increasing renewables, we're also going to increase our fossil fuel production as well?
2: it does, because, you know, we're either facing a climate crisis or we're not. And if we do believe and we look at the scientific facts, we are facing a climate crisis. We're facing a nature crisis and an energy security crisis. And the only way out of that is to leave the past behind us, leave the fossil fuels in the ground and go the renewable route. You know, for decades now, we've been told about what's happening in the world. And if we truly believe that and we look at the facts that we can't go back to where we were with fossil fuels. It's a no-brainer to accelerate the deployment of renewables.
0: Mm. And, and Sarah, I mean, do you do you think there's a danger we could be going back a down a fossil fuel route?
1: Um, I mean, I, obviously there are some um, uh, so, so, some players in the market that want to try and revive fracking and in, increase, um, uh, you know, oil and gas production in the North Sea, but ultimately. You know, the vast majority of people in the, you know, or or, or, you know, massive companies in in the industry, they know the future is in clean power. It's the cheapest source of of, of power. They know, you know, they know which road they're on. And ultimately, um, it just seems to be a massive distraction. You know, the, the, the arguments coming back in the in the UK about fracking, um, you know, fracking was stopped in the UK not necessarily on environmental grounds, but um on, on other grounds. You know, that that doesn't change. Um and, you know, we were talking earlier on about getting consents for um for onshore wind, you know, getting consents for, you know, massive rollout of fracking in 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 England and southern England in particular. It, it you know, it's really hard to see that happening. And so ultimately it's a huge distraction. And yeah, the focus is you know, the the way forward is so clear. And that is a renewable clean energy future. Um yeah people trying to you know revive um very very tired and old arguments about you know fracking it is just um it's just a huge distraction and um i i i can't see it um going very well because it's not um you know it, it's just so against the direction of the whole of the um of the energy industry um and you know even from an investment perspective do you know what i mean it, it it wind and solar are the cheapest sources of power so yeah ga- ga- gas is on its way out in the long term anyway so yeah i i i can't see it being a huge thing just a distraction
2: in i was just going to say just a, a curious stat- statistic here in ireland um february 2022 was one of the windiest months ever on record and on the windiest days the wholesale the wholesale price of electricity fell to 130 euro per megawatt hour whereas on the least windiest days it rose to 230 euro per Per megawatt hour. So it's, it's phenomenal, you know, and as Sarah said, it is, it's cheaper, it's greener, it's better all around to go the renewable route. And to think that we might go back to where we were um, and not learn, you know, the lessons as to why we, were, we are where we are in the current crisis, um, it would be very disappointing.
0: Well, I think that brings us really nicely to to looking ahead a little bit and about this, you know, the decisions we're making. Obviously, we're making decisions in the middle of a crisis. Do you think that there is a danger we could hinder the transition because people are making decisions in you know in short time and maybe without thinking about the long term consequences? Or is any decision to go uh, renewable a, a good one? Uh, Caroline, could I start with you on that one?
2: Yeah, um, I think if the decisions are based on scientific evidence and facts, then they can only be good. You know, in the EU at the moment, they're introducing key measures focused on speeding up the deployment of wind, for example. They've increased the EU 2030 wind target by. 30 gigawatts to 480 gigawatts um, they've established dedicated funds for wind energy supply chain um, they're trying to speed up the permitting process that I spoke about earlier and they've introduced a hydrogen accelerator program as well um, so they're really trying to apply a level of urgency that we haven't seen before in the renewable industry in the EU and hopefully that's uh, urgency will be applied here in Ireland because we just don't have the luxury of time anymore you know if we look as I said earlier at that late latest um ipcc report. We, we really don't have time and we have to act
0: now no it's scary old stuff isn't it so one final question if i may we always ask people uh, our guests on podcast if you are an optimist or a pessimist for the future uh so i wonder if i could start with you optimist or pessimist
1: absolutely optimist yeah we, we, we've got all the solutions that we need, or not necessarily all, but you know, we, we've got all the solutions that we need that we can be deploying in the next 30 or 40 years. We just need to get on and do it. Uh, you know, beyond 2050, when you're talking about you know massive negative emissions, we need to develop those technologies. But you know, we've got plenty to be getting on with, and we can make huge reductions, and it's just a case of getting it done.
0: Brilliant, Caroline.
2: Yeah, um, I think when I, I listened to the last podcast on, on, on this and what your, your contributors said that he was a, put it really well, he said he was a, a short term pessimist, long term optimist. And I think that's completely, that captures exactly how I feel. And when we think about the poor people in the Ukraine and what's happening there at the moment, it's hard to be optimistic. But I think In the long term, I'm definitely an optimist, yes. Like what Sarah said, we have the technology, we have the uh, resources, we have the wherewithal to do it, so let's just get on and do it.
0: Exactly. And our thoughts, of course, are with our members in Ukraine as well, who are undergoing truly something that no one should ever have to go undergo in their lives. And our thoughts and prayers are with them. Thank you both. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you, Caroline, for a fascinating, gosh, we could talk all day, couldn't we, about this. And thanks for your insights and thoughts do please send in your thoughts. You know, we will use them in the next podcast and your comments and anything else you'd like to mention uh, from us uh, for now. Until next time, thanks very much indeed. And thanks for listening to Greening the News.